Good morning. My name is uh, Taylor Keene. I'm an elder here, and I am not your usual pastor. You might ask how I ended up in this position. People have asked already this morning, why are you doing this? Um, (laughs) And uh, it boils down to simply that at a previous elder meeting, I said, the elders might should preach once in a while, and they remembered. (laughs) So this is what yes looks like. Speaking of families and how complicated they can be, let's turn to the text this morning. For those of you just visiting or coming today, uh, we are working our way through the the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves at the juncture where Jesus, after Jesus has been baptized, after he's been tempted in the wilderness, and has declared the beginning of his ministry. That's all in chapter (laughs) 1. I mean, Mark's busy. He's very succinct. Um, Mark is the most succinct of all the Gospels, and so he uses subtle hints and words to do much deeper things with meanings than the other Gospels. Um, And so it is through his carefully chosen words we find great intention and purpose, and so we need to pay attention. He chooses to focus more on what Jesus does than what he says. And Mark's reference references a place pretty early on in our text today, and he referenced it maybe last, last week too, um, called Galilee. And I don't want you to miss the depth and the point of why Jesus is referencing and even choosing to start his ministry here. So take a brief trip with me through the patriarchy of the Old Testament to get a feel for the context. Now, bear with me. I wasn't tasked to preach the entire Old Testament to you, and I don't want to. Please, no. Um, And so I will be skipping a lot. (laughs) I will skip entire people. I will skip thousands of years. I just want you to get the gist of what brings us to Galilee on this day with Jesus choosing the disciples, okay? So first, God has a plan, a plan from the beginning to restore his people from sin and into a right relationship with him. He begins by choosing a man to... To build his people from. The man's name was Abram. And then God renamed him Abraham. (laughs) Pay attention, this renaming thing happens a lot. God promised Abraham enough offspring to outnumber the stars and who will have a land that flows with milk and honey, aka the promised land. His literal promise may be as important to hear. And so God's promise to make of you a great nation, he's speaking to Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that, who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, notice this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. His grandson, Abraham's, Abraham's grandson, was named Jacob, who was later to be renamed Israel. See, it just keeps going. Um, He had 12 sons. These 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. The number 12, just in case of foreshadowing, it's also important. The fulfillment of of God giving his people the land he promised comes after generations of slavery, a God-delivered exodus from that slavery, 40 years of wandering in the the desert, and then having to conquer the people already residing in the promised lands. Once there, the promised land was divided up into 12 areas, again, named after all these sons and grandsons, forming the, the first version of what the nation had to be Israel. Okay, they were not unified until they whined enough that God gave them a king. He gave them three kings. Saul, didn't go so well. David, went spectacularly. 
with some flaws. And then Solomon started good, ended bad. And it's after Solomon that the kingdom literally divided into half. We have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was comprised of, well, let's do the southern kingdom first. The southern kingdom was comprised of Benjamin and Judah. And that was it. The rest of it was the northern kingdom. As you see on the map, you see all that green? That's the northern kingdom. Now, that northern kingdom, the theme with the kings was simply this. They did not do what was good in God's eyes. There was one king that kind of did it. The rest of them, nope. And soon, Assyria came, took them, took them over, assimilated them into almost being nothing. The ten tribes of the north disappear. The southern kingdom had some good kings, had some bad kings, eventually got taken over, went into exile, but then Nehemiah and Ezra came back, rebuilt the temple, and this is the place that we have today. Well, not really that place with Jesus. Um, and so it was called Judah. But Judah became Judah Heights because that's the people of Judah and Jews. And then, just for clarification, because it's called Judea on the next map, Greg, in Greek and Latin, the let me, let me actually say this right because I'm going to mess it up. Um, it was there that, that the Greek and Latin that they actually take the Judah, Judah Heights and they make it Judea. Okay? So, all that. Why did I need to share this condensed version of the Old Testament with you? Because Jesus starts here in Galilee. You see the very northern part? The brown is Judah. That's where Jerusalem and the central area of all Jews. And then north is Galilee. In between there, Samaria. The Jews don't like them either, okay? Um, I'll say, Galilee was full of Gentiles or non-Jewish people. And since the kingdom was split in two, the, kingdom has had, the kingdoms have large disdain. They don't like each other. Remember when Jesus preached the sermon or gave the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's because nothing good is in Samaria. And Jesus is like, no, no, there is. <laughs> Let me show you. Um, to illustrate, even one of the men who would be a disciple initially posited the question, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth being in Galilee. Jesus being from Nazareth. Yeah. Um, to say the views of the day, they, um, they thought they were be- the Jews of that day thought they were better than the northern brothers. And to put it simply, to put it simply, and the Jewish religious elite didn't stop there. They would place themselves above anyone who didn't follow this law, their law, the way they interpreted it. And the animosity from the northern brothers to the southern brothers was returned with interest. And so here we are. Jesus, the Messiah, begins his ministry in Galilee, far from the center of the Jewish world, probably the last place anyone would, con- anyone would pre- predict the Messiah would make his first proclamation. And this is actually symbolic of how he was going to t- continually going to turn expectations upside down by previewing how the Gentiles are going to be grafted in to the kingdom. Last note. It's also a literary device. Galilee is also the place where Jesus tells the disciples he's going to meet them after the resurrection. So it's a nice little bookends for Mark. All right, all that said, will you rise with me and read today's scripture? We're going to be dipping into three different chapters of um, Mark's three, first three chapters. And so just note there's a lot of things that happen between these verses. I'm not going to go into all those. I will allude to them, but we're not going to read them all today. We're going to get into those in future weeks. Read with me. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. On to chapter 2. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And chapter 3. And he went up on the mountainside, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him and might send him out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerius, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's the word of the Lord. Please be seated, guys. All right. No turning back. Here we go. (laughs) Point number one. Jesus called the everyday nobody an outcast. There's quite a bit of observations um, under these first. Notice it's 1A and 1B. I I have four points, but I snuck in 1A and 1B because they're kind of the same. Um, There are quite a bit of observations, all of which are quite encouraging to us. But first of all, just note the casual language of Mark. Jesus was just out for a stroll. He was on the, along the lakeside, not much different than we might do with Crevecore Lake. And while taking his stroll, he takes notice of a couple of fishermen to whom he calls out and says to them, what exactly? To follow him, to become fishers of men. That's it. Not success, not wealth, not comfort. In fact, it could be questioned if they actually fully knew what they were agreeing to. Now, we can assume to an extent that when Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom is at hand in the paragraph before, that at the very least these guys had heard, heard about him. And we can probably safely assume that he heard directly from them. But at this point, can you imagine what's happening inside the disciples as they go from casting nets to dropping everything to follow what can be best described as a stranger making bold proclamations? This has to be a pretty surreal moment, Right? Aren't you a bit curious about what the disciples were thinking as they set down their nets and walked toward Jesus? What about the sons of Zebedee? As they told their father and their co-laborers that they were leaving, like right then. 
the text makes it clear that they were, there was no hesitation. With these first four, it was immediate. The Greek word for immediate is euthus. And it's translated straight away, obviously immediately, but also forthwith. This word for Mark is used 41 times. Now remember, Mark doesn't use many words. He's repeating this one a lot. <laughs> for Simon and Andrew, they have left, they have to leave their occupation. The only thing they know to do to, and to go, again, to not knowing where they were going or what this was going to be. For James and John, they left a successful family business. When you have co-laborers, that means they're able to hire people to work with them. That's a successful business in that time. And they left immediately. There's not much room for them going, hey, Dad, I'm giving them a two-week's notice. Right? And it doesn't seem like they even have much far, like, room for Dad to even protest. They just went. Okay. Let's notice one thing. This is the first action Jesus takes after proclaiming the kingdom is at hand. Before he heals, before he exercises demons, before he feeds thousands, before he walks on water, or raises people from the dead, Jesus calls his disciples. This can be nothing less than to show the high value of importance Jesus placed on the building of his new church. And you can see how Jesus from the start was conforming to what was against was not conforming to what was expected of the Messiah at that time. You see, the Jewish people expected a warrior king like David. After all, Jesus was in David's bloodline. They wanted a king to bring them out of under the rule of Rome and bring them back to prominence, not start with a movement of uneducated nobodies, at least nobodies according to the religious elite of the day. So why did Jesus choose these hardworking, uneducated fishermen, and to what did he actually call them to? Let's take another look at the language used by Jesus here. You see, for much of my faith journey, I've been guilty of reading too fast, especially in seminary, because, you know, there's too many books. Like me, many of us can read a text in the, in the Bible that we've read before and just skip right over entire phrases or words. And that's what happened with me. As I was preparing for this sermon, I just, didn't, I just saw this, and I didn't understand it, and I, didn't, I never saw it before, and then it kind of hit me like a two-by-four. And this is kind of that thing that the Bible does, how it's a living document, right? It illuminates the things to your eyes that you may not see before, and you might not have seen in this way before. And so let's look at this. I read right over the phrase, fishers of men. Because I always read it as a verb. He's going to go fishing. He's going to catch men. Which, strange symbolism. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's the calling. I'll make you fishers of men. I will make you to become fishers of men. That's our calling as well. But fishers here is not a verb. It's a noun. Now that might be, seem obvious to some of you, you know, educated literary people. But not to me. I caught on. And I'm like, okay, now it's a noun. But Jesus isn't just addressing the direction of which they cast their nets, but is actually changing and transforming the very nature of who they are. The call isn't as much about doing something as it is to be something. Fishers of men, to become fishers of men. Through this, Jesus gives them, he gives us a new identity. 
Do you see the relevance to, the, to us as we walk through our daily grind of our faith? His call on our life is not about who we are or even what we are capable of, but more about what he might make us become. We often look at the calling through the lens of being saved from something, but it is so much more than that. We are indeed saved from our previous life of sin, from sin's dominion over us, but we are also saved to something. The crux of our faith centers around what is already done through Christ's sacrifice and how we join that story. Because we are already saved, justified, and complete in him, we join the story and follow where he leads us. Paul Tripp summarizes it quite well. Jesus did not come to make your life work, but to employ you in his work. Employ you in his work. Between the calling of the first four disciples in chapter 1, we also read about um, another guy, Levi, slash Matthew, although we don't know when his uh, name change occurred. Um, so in his own, his own gospel, he just refers to himself as Matthew, never Levi, so we're not really sure what that happens. Um, and so in between chapter 1 and 2, Jesus has been doing lots of Jesus things. He's been cleansing things. He's been healing things. He's been preaching, you know, typical Jesus that we know from the full full spectrum of the New Testament that we have. Again, there's a momentum building, and Jesus is getting the attention of all the scribes and Pharisees and all the religious elite. But let's flip over to the actual this calling, where the first four may have been relative unknowns. Levi slash Matthew was despised, utterly. You see, he's a tax collector, and essentially... He wasn't just the tax collector. I should make this clear. He was the tax collector of that area. Number one. Okay? And essentially, being a tax collector puts you in the awkward spot of collecting money from your people for the residing Roman government. Now, the Roman government didn't care how much you added onto that fee to keep for your own pocket as long as they got their share. Do you see the corruption that just plagued tax collectors in this time? It was off the charts. But again, notice when Jesus calls Levi, the hesitation is not there. He instantly stands up and goes immediately. Jesus, in this one act, one-upped himself in calling the nobodies and the uneducated fishermen by choosing the one person that no one else wanted. Jesus is again pushing the envelope and expanding the definition of who the kingdom has come for. Jesus affirms this later at that dinner, which is, you know, thrown by Levi to celebrate his new life. And he's invited all his friends, all his sinner friends, all his tax collector friends. And this is important because Jesus merely eating with these tax collectors slash sinners says that he identifies with them. Because in that time, who you ate with is who you hung out with. Think high school cafeteria times 10, right? And it's in this sitting with, identifying with, that Jesus is affirming the acceptance of the broken sinners over those who have it all together. If you remember, Jesus states that he has come for the sinners, not the righteous. One last observation about Jesus' methods and how they go against the grain of what is actually considered normal. Like teachers or rabbis of the day, the disciples walked behind Jesus when they're in towns or areas. Um, 
But rabbis in the day would teach the Torah and help people learn, but they never walked around telling people they had to follow them. People asked rabbis to, you know, can I, can I learn from you? Jesus said, I'm a rabbi. Follow me. Get in line. Let's go. And he definitely, no rabbi ever walked around and said, immediately follow me. Right? So why did Jesus choose these ragtag bunch of guys to begin the ministry? He had options, right? Pharisees and scribes are the obvious choice. Even seeking to have some other rabbis follow him might have made some sense. But bluntly stated, Jesus could have elevated himself in many ways, or at least made his job while he was on this earth a lot easier. Instead, he chose the meek, unassuming path, a path that does not diminish, but elevates the authoritative nature of his call. The king is calling people to follow him. As we hold the entirety of Scripture in perspective, does God ever really do what's predictable? The Savior of the world's birth in a stable in a nowhere town that was first announced to shepherds who themselves are outcasts? Are we really surprised that Jesus goes against the grain? But why does he do that? It comes to point number two. Jesus called the everyday nobody, I guess point number 1B, if everybody's writing things down. I don't want to screw up your outline. <laughs> Jesus called the everyday nobody an outcast so that his power could be displayed. Any other way, and the people selected, whether the Pharisees, scribes, or rabbis, would feel on some level that their position, their knowledge, their power, their prestige would have contributed to the reason of their selection. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to, to shame the strong. But I also like the version of the New Living Translation, because sometimes when you read other translations, words are highlighted and brought out in a different way. So let's consider it in that same scripture in that, in that translation. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. The upside-down kingdom, right? If he had chose the Pharisees, they would have felt they had a right or a sense of privilege that would contribute to them earning and being selected, but also that they'd have a say in how the kingdom's ministry would go forward. Remember the cultural mindset of privilege of being a Jew, especially a Pharisee who thought they had it all figured out, as well as the assumption of this of who the Messiah would be. Remember, warrior king? If we flip the script and we look at the disciples, I wonder if they had any idea of any qualification or any reason why Jesus would choose them. Why would he choose them? With choosing those who aren't deemed worthy by social standards, everything that followed could only be attributed to Jesus as a representative of God. God in the flesh. With choosing the uneducated, he has a blank slate by which to work, mold, grow these men into the beginning of his church. So where does that leave us today as we sit here? How does God's call on our life change or affect us? Maybe you're beginning to remember or wonder about your call when you accepted Christ and how your life changed in that moment. There are probably not many of us with a similar call that the disciples experienced here. The immediate get up and go. There might be some of us. Others of us probably wrestled for a number of years, months, days, weeks, whatever it is, with questions, maybe weighing the cost 
of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Our coming to faith stories are as individual as, individual as we are. If you're still exploring the possibility of accepting Jesus as Lord, maybe the question is more about possibilities and hesitation, but maybe there's fear as well. For me, I felt the call, but I, don't, I didn't have the community around me to help support and encourage me as I began the journey. I was 18. It was the summer before I went to college, and pretty much the youth pastor was like, you're not in my youth group anymore, so I'm not talking to you. <laughs> and I was like, that's not cool. So um, I went to school, didn't really know anything, was kind of dark. I didn't have people speaking into me. The process of discipleship is having a disciple leader speaking into a young disciple, and that being passed down the line, right? I had nobody speaking into me. But I held on because I'm pretty stubborn and loyal. And when I say I'm going to do something, even if it is following Jesus, I don't know what that means. I'm going to do it. So for me, my faith call was like a dimmer switch. That was dark for a long time. (laughs) Very subtle light in a dark room. And it wasn't until I came here about 15 years ago um, that that dimmer switch began to change. It was here in authentic community that I began to be able to ask questions and be exposed to what is actually true about community and the gospel. And I was able to actually begin to be transparent and actually admit my insecurities, my fears, my flaws, and still receive acceptance. That's community, okay? And when, as I referenced earlier, I lost my mom and I lost my daughter, that was three months apart, same year. You can imagine it's a pretty dark year. It was this family, this church, that surrounded Abby and I with unconditional support, unwavering. We didn't have a choice. <laughs> I swear, if we had a choice, we wouldn't have allowed people to come in, but they forced their way in. That's community. And wherever you are, the calling on our life always points in the same direction. As a believer, your primary calling, the first thing that you're supposed to think is to bring glory to God by loving him with everything you have. Jesus summed up the entire Old Testament law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, your neighbor as yourself, right? Not all of us are called to quit our jobs and be a missionary. But are we able to orient our work to the message of the gospel? I would be lying to you if I could have ever predicted I would be standing here right now as I accepted my undergrad degree in graphic design and fine arts. Here, okay? Our jobs, our occupations are literally fertile ground of being the holy and set-apart people that God calls us to be. How do you allow the principles that Jesus taught to inform your daily work as you allow yourself the privilege of working for his glory and not a paycheck? Financial stability was no longer the disciples' chief motivation because they slept on the dirt every night. Can we say the same? Jesus does not respect their earthly vocation. No, I'm sorry. He doesn't reject. He does respect it. Let me be clear. He doesn't reject their earthly vocation, but reorients it to about, be about bringing him glory. We have to resist the temptation to make our work our identity. Just like the original disciples, we are called to participate in the kingdom, to look around, to pay attention. What is God up to? What is he already doing? We aren't called to usher the kingdom in 
nor could we even, if we had been that calling, I'm not sure, obviously we couldn't do it by ourselves. But we are called to participate. And let's remember that God made us individuals. Very, none of us are alike. And what things bring us joy and satisfaction is different. So how I participate in the kingdom will not be how you participate in the kingdom. But we are called to obedience. But not with grudging, grumbling hearts. But we're called to go. To do. But not because we're supposed to. But instead, finding out areas that we enjoy. To be fulfilled by the calling. I love this quote by Bob Goff. If you don't know who Bob Goff is, go find him. He's awesome. Every day, God invites us on the same kind of adventure. It's not a trip where he sends us a rigid itinerary. He simply invites us. God asks, what is it he has made us to love? What is it that captures our attention? What feeds that deep, indescribable need of our souls to experience the richness of, his, of the world he made? And then, leaning over us, he whispers, let's go do that together. That's your Heavenly Father. This may be challenging for you. It might be new. But how often do we let our fear lead us into sitting on the side instead of letting the power of the conquered grave to move our feet? Perfect love does, in fact, cast out fear, beginning with the truth that the love of Christ, the love with which we are loved, is indeed perfect. Letting that perfect love to flow through us and out into our day and choices is choosing light in the darkness. There is freedom here. Our Heavenly Father watching us, fulfilling the calling He has placed on our heart, brings joy to Him. Just like any parent who has watched their kids play, laugh with utter freedom. That is a joyful place when your parents, when you watch as a parent, your kid to not be aware of people watching them, right? Our Heavenly Father is not only glorified when we enjoy the path He has us on, but I'd imagine He's also filled the same way a loving parent would be. This is a calling that permeates all of us, that calls us to let go and trust. Discipleship is not part-time or volunteer work that we undertake when it is simple or convenient. Don't we often silo our faith this way? We have a church box, we have a non-church box. How, I forgot the word. Here we go. How often do we think of Christianity as something to do when it is comfortable or suitable? We worship when we want we give out our time and our, or our money when we want. We put the needs of others first when we want. We come to church when we want. We may help serve, but it's when we want. We study when it's good for us, but rarely make time to actually sit in the Word or in prayer. We make Jesus fit into our timelines, our families, and our jobs. That's not what the text calls us to. The text calls us to follow, not to carry a pocket-sized Jesus around that we take out and put away when it's convenient. We have to be prepared to leave everything to follow him. Simon and Andrew turn from their nets while James and John turn from their father 
coworkers and profitable business. They made great sacrifice to follow Jesus. How have you been inconvenienced by Jesus this week? What did you sacrifice? Me too. <laughs> Me too. It's hard writing this, by the way. <laughs> but lest we begin to paint the disciples in too great of a picture, we have to remember they are still people. They're still knuckleheads. The Gospel of Luke provides a different kind of perspective of this first calling of, of Peter. Getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked to put out a little far from the land, a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out your deep or put out to the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, I can just hear the whiny voice. But Lord, we already did. We've been working all day. And then he maybe takes a moment and realizes, oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, you're right. At your request, I will let down the nets. And he's obedient, grumbly, whiny, obedient, right? And when he said done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. You see, Jesus can handle our doubts, our questions, our waffling back and forth. And not everyone gets the immediate call or, or of supernatural faith to follow. But he does prove himself to be a Lord worthy of following. Still with me? Okay. Point number two. Jesus recognized his need for authentic community. And he went up to the mountain and he called to him those who he desired and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve so they might be with him. As a counselor, my favorite phrase in that sentence is, be with him. He recognized his need to be around people who he could just sit down and not be God for a moment. That he could just be with. Let's not pretend that the incarnate Lord did not know how to laugh and have fun. If he is perfectly embodies the Lord in human form, this includes all of our emotions and our relationships. He knew and cared for his disciples, but he also enjoyed being with them and sharing time with them. You ever seen a sports team play above their actual heads of inability for their coach because they believed in him, they're connected to him? In the same way, these guys were called to give up everything to follow Jesus. Do you think they would stay if they weren't connected to him? If they weren't enmeshed with him? If they didn't enjoy being with him? I love John Eldridge's book called Beautiful Outlaw because it simply begins to poke holes in my image of Jesus as this rigid, dry bag of unfun. Maybe you like me, and maybe when you read his voice in Scripture, you hear more of an emotionless teacher than the very essence of what it means to be human. I would encourage you to read through the Gospels and give Jesus a sense of humor and see what those words, those, those little red words in your Bible, see how they transform. All right, let's read this quote from Eldridge for a second. He is the playfulness of creation, the scandal and utter goodness, the generosity of the ocean and the ferocity of the thunderstorm. He is cunning as a snake and gentle as a whisper. The gladness of sunshine and the humility of a 30-mile walk by foot on a dirt road. Reclining at a meal, laughing with friends, and then going to the cross. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is beautiful. 
But most of all, it is the way he loves. In all these stories, every encounter, we have watched love in action. Love is strong as death, a blood, sweat, and tears love, not a get-well card. You learn a great deal about the true nature of a person in the way that they love, why they love, and in what they love. Will talked about Emmanuel last week, God with us. That's who Jesus is. That's what his name means, Emmanuel. Jesus chose intimate relationships, chose to not only draw near, but to allow others to draw near to him. Remember, Christ is the incarnate God, condescending to live not among us, but like us, to feel our hurts, our joys. When the author of Hebrews states, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, this is what he's talking about. While Jesus was both fully God and fully man, he chose only to live through the body of a man in full dependence on his heavenly father as a model for us. So when the incarnate Lord's first act after proclaiming the gospel to find people to, is to find people to walk with, spend time with, shouldn't we pay attention? As a Christian counselor, I'm often confronted with how to intersect the Bible with, the way, with all of life. But I think we might put too much weight on the Bible to our own detriment. Now hear me out before some of you begin to fully check out and actually look for the quickest exit. The Bible's perfect. It's inerrant. Period. Not questioning that. It is God's given word to give us. He gave given to us so that we can know him more intimately. But if I'm not mistaken, the Bible is never called the bride of Christ. As he called the church. Do we need the Bible? Absolutely. We have much to learn and glean and continually to grow from studying scripture. However, if Jesus makes having small group of people in his circle that he trusts to walk out his faith, shouldn't we pay attention? Our brains literally, neurochemically need the connection we share when we sit in a conversation with people of being seen and being known. I think having a solid foundation in scripture has to be at least in some tension with being in and among people that know you, who can remind you who you are when you forget, who can celebrate with you, who can rebuke you, who can grieve with you as you walk through the seasons of life. People to help push you, to pull you up, pick you up as you walk out the new identity that Christ places on your life. This isn't easy, and relationships are never just sunshine and rainbows, believe me. Remember, we are all selfish and broken people, and community isn't just people like us, but people that challenge us, inconvenience us, and generally cause us to sacrifice our resources of time, energy, and money. This was true for Jesus' life with the disciples who argued who would be honored more and who consistently misunderstood or missed the point of his teachings entirely. Jesus intentionally chose to be with these guys. And as he hung out with the people who were on the fringes of the outskirts of society, he brought his disciples with him. Again, after calling Levi, they had a meal with all the sinners and all the tax collectors where Jesus makes his heart for people known. It is the people that are sick that need the doctor. It is the people who have never known love or acceptance 
who have fought the battle of insecurity, feeling unworthy that Jesus calls. For us, in our doubt, in our rebellion, he is still patiently waiting to be with us, whispering the truth of our identity of being chosen, of being loved, of being worthy to be known. Even in the midst of what had to be immensely frustrating moments for Jesus with these disciples, he stayed with them and eventually elevated some of them to a more select group. Point number three. Jesus demonstrates his need to share his burdens so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, the paragraph right before the apostles' selection is Jesus getting mobbed. <laughs> lots of people, lots and lots of people. And so his booming ministry at this point, um, it's so bad that Jesus has a literal getaway boat <laughs> prepared, okay? But let's not be ignorant. Jesus doesn't have space for reprieve, right? And I think a lot of us can maybe relate to that lack of ability to find reprieve, right? Relentless work weeks, countless demands without space to unwind and breathe and just be. It's so bad that we, as a culture, don't know how to just sit. No, seriously. When was the last time you just sat? Just sat, quietly, distraction-free. Even for two minutes. I instruct people to do this in counseling, and they look like, like I'm a ghost. Like, are you serious? Two minutes. They come back and say, it felt like forever. It felt like 20 minutes. And I'm like, you don't have that muscle. Mental muscles are much like our muscles in our body. We have to work them. Our brains have become accustomed to constant stimulation and relentless need for attention. Social media, ring a bell. How do you deal with someone reading but not responding to your text? How does that feel? This is actually an area of acute anxiety for a lot of people. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I wish I was. They cannot deal with the unknown and or do not know what it means to wait. How much less can they be still before the Lord? Then there's this pressure of perception and how we are supposed to be for other people. Jesus recognized his need to recharge and to be by himself. He went off to pray in a mountain. He often went off and people were like, where'd he go? He just left and would separate himself. Kent Hughes kind of brings up this point, and I'll kind of summarize it very succinctly. If you're invited to go to a party and you said, no thanks, I have to spend tonight by myself, how would that be received? Yeah, just think about that for a second. It's, at best, they might be like, that's weird. Why wouldn't Taylor want to come to a party? I thought he liked us. That's at best. At worst, it's like rude or egotistical. Why does he think he's better than us? He doesn't want to hang out with us, right? Think about that. The pressure of demands of being something for everybody around us often overrides the demand of Jesus has on our life. He appoints 12, paralleling the, paralleling the 12 tribes of Israel. I told you 12 was important. And how Moses 
Um, and Joshua all appointed 12 men, one from each tribe as, they, you know, as, as Joshua crossed into the, the, the promised land. And while it doesn't say it explicitly, Jesus could be appointing 12 in a symbolic act of establishing a new or renewed Israel, a new or renewed nation, similar to the act of Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, the founding patriarch, of which when he founded that, when he named his sons and he gave them their blessings as he died, this was it, to be these tribes. Jesus elevated these men out of necessity, but also because he trusted them to be his representative. No leader can lead and do it all. A leader has to have people he can trust to delegate to. These are people he had come to know, and through that knowledge began to see them and the potential of who they could be. Selection of the apostles is giving them the authority and will eventually be the bedrock of the new church. He gave them some new names, which as we have seen today and throughout biblical history is significant. These guys, John and Daniel, they say it, about, say it like this. In biblical thought, change of names exhibits the power of the namer and occurs in the context of a new stage or new mission. Still wondering when Levi became Matthew, though. I'm still working on that one. Among them, overzealous, inconsistent Simon became the rock on which the church will be built. The two brothers were nicknamed Bonergus by the Lord Jesus. This name means the sons of thunder, and this name fits because they had brash tempers. They even wanted to pray down fire on a village that refused to host them. That was these guys. He renamed them. <laughs> they also had a little bit of a selfish ambition because they, they were the two that asked Jesus who would be honored more at his right hand. And Jesus named them, right? Notice. Jesus doesn't send them to preach only to the Jewish people, but generally to anyone who has ears to hear. From the moment Jesus set foot on the earth, he began turning upside down our idea of how lives, our lives should be lived, who, should, who we should love, and how we should love them. He revealed the full plan of salvation to include everyone and not the self-proclaimed, just the self-proclaimed elect. A plan for a relational faith instead of a faith, that is, a faith that is siloed off from people different than us. We are called to set aside our presumptions and to learn to be with our neighbor, even when it's difficult. Too often we hide behind our schedules, our busyness, our jobs. I get it. I'm busy. I get it. We are all busy. And above all, I teach the concept of balance between the tension of going nonstop and being still. But I wonder if we use our schedules as an excuse because we are too often afraid of facing the difficult task in front of us, whether it's being with or being without people. Jesus modeled stepping out of conventional comfort zones, but he also modeled sitting and being with his Father to be reminded of whose he actually is. Jesus modeled keeping people he trusts close in intimate relationships. Authentic Christian community is not just the people you know in church, but loving the ones who might not know what it means to feel loved. To become fishers of men is to accept the call that your life wasn't yours to start with. It is no coincidence that right after Jesus proclaimed the kingdom that he issued a call to follow, a call to set aside our comfort-seeking 
self-fulfilling, distraction-filled worlds to set down our nets and follow. He calls us to tangibly respond, to choose to submit to his plan for our lives and the freedom that comes with with the ceasing of the striving and the fretting. The gospel states that we love because he first loved us. And the love with which we are loved is an everlasting love without judgment, without condemnation. Jesus' sacrifice gives us access to a choice to step out of the dark and into the light. His action demands a response. Today, you can choose to follow in obedience. And whether you're a believer for many years or yet to say, or yet to say yes, how will you respond to his call? Will you follow him today? Pray with me.